This podcast is brought to you by Brunner Communications, your best resource for public speaking, presentation, and storytelling skills. Visit lizbrunner.com and take your skills to the next level. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Live Your Best Life with Liz Bruner. I'm Liz, and my goal with each episode is to share stories of people who are recreating their lives or rising above challenges to write their next chapters with authenticity. These stories give me the courage to go after living my best life, and I think they will do that for you, too. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to the show so this podcast can continue to inspire next chapters all over the world. Imagine living the high life, co-owning a multi-million dollar company, first-class plane tickets, and working in a swanky office to having it all come crashing down. My guest went from living in a penthouse to his parents' house in his 30s. Entrepreneur Sterling Hawkins has spent his life coming back from the brink. By hunting down his own discomfort, an entirely new path opened up to him, realizing breakthroughs beyond his wildest dreams. And he believes you can do the same in your own life. Sterling, welcome to my podcast. I'm so happy to see you again. Thanks for having me on, Liz. I appreciate the generous introductions. Well, it's all true. That's the thing. (laughs) (laughs) It is true. It feels a little bit like a dream slash nightmare sometimes, but 100%. (laughs) Sterling, most people do not want to seek discomfort. If anything, we want to run from it. But you believe we need to proactively seek discomfort. Not only seek it, we have to hunt it down. Why? Why is discomfort important? Yeah, well, my book's called Hunting Discomfort, and probably the biggest feedback I get is exactly that. Like, Sterling, look at my business, my bank account, my relationships. I don't need to hunt discomfort. I'm surrounded by it. And my answer is always the same. If you're surrounded by discomfort, you're living with it, placating it, coming up for reasons that you have it. When you hunt discomfort, you are forever and ultimately free of it. I think the challenge for us, Liz, is oftentimes we're living lives that are constricted, restrained, and resigned to discomfort. And what I'm advocating for is actually breaking free of that to live true to what's ultimately important to us and who we really are. You mentioned your book, Hunting Discomfort, How to Get Breakthrough Results in Life and Business No Matter What. No matter it's what. An incredibly, no matter what. It is incredibly powerful. I read it. I loved it. And you called discomfort that divining rod. And you just touched on this a moment ago. And I'm going to quote here from your book, which you say, that discomfort is the only thing that's between you and the results you want. Explain that just a little bit further for us. I really do think that. That's not to say we don't need to learn new things and hard work, but it's discomfort that stops us at the end of the day. And if we look back in the human timeline many years ago, when we were more in a survival stance, discomfort drove our behavior. You know, if we were cold, we had to find some place to be warm. If we had the discomfort of being hungry, we had to go out and forage or hunt. It was driving our behavior to get the results that we wanted. And ultimately, we survived, or at least our ancestors did, or we wouldn't be here. Today, modernity has afforded us the luxury of Discomfort not having to drive our behavior. You know, I can quite comfortably sit on the couch and be entertained by Netflix and order food on Uber Eats and talk to people on Zoom and never really have to do anything that's all that uncomfortable. And so no longer is it driving our behavior. And it ends up making us maybe stuck 
maybe resigned, maybe finding ourselves in places that we don't really want to be. And as we can confront that discomfort, we'll probably first find it and then confront it and move through it. That's where we can ultimately achieve what it is that we want in business and life. You have done some pretty adventurous things in your life, but some might even call them dangerous. You have trekked the Sahara. You've gone skydiving. You lived in the Amazon, basically off the grid for a time and even cage diving with great white sharks. But to be clear, you say discomfort is not the same as danger. What's the difference? Skydiving was a a blast. I went with my sister several years ago, and it was terrifying. Have you ever been skydiving, Liz? I have. And and to your point, it's exhilarating and terrifying all at the same time. (laughs) Right. Well, it was the lead up that really got me. And terrified, couldn't even speak going up in the plane, and you jump out, and it's this incredible experience. But I was doing some research afterwards, and I realized the likelihood of having something go catastrophically wrong is far higher on the drive there or even the walk into the skydiving place than it is actually to jump out of the plane, right? There is a very big difference between discomfort when we just feel discomfort and what's actually dangerous. And when we can look at the research or the physics or the reality of the situation, we can better distinguish that line and go after the things that are uncomfortable for us and maybe holding us back, but not dangerous. I don't advocate anybody doing anything too dangerous anyways, myself included. You have that adventurous spirit. Perhaps when growing up totally. in New York, your favorite, t- your t- favorite TV show was MacGyver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did love it. Yeah, and you did Outward Bound and all that stuff. Where mm-hmm. was all of that leading? What, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And it worked out for me early on, as you shared. You know, my first company I got pretty lucky with, and we worked really hard, and we sold it, became part of this multi-billion dollar startup, which was kind of like the Apple Pay before Apple Pay. And so in a way, I thought I was living my dream. And when that company came crashing down, and the housing market collapsed, and our funding dried up, and, you know, as, as you said, I went from the penthouse to my parents' house, it really had me step back and reflect on, well, who am I really? And not only what do I want to create, but who am I that's doing the creating and get more connected to a a grounded place where I was no longer driven by maybe some of the limiting beliefs that I had from my past or that I had adopted in school or from parents or from families or from the cultures that I was in but I could start to live true to what I really ultimately wanted to do. And I look back at that total collapse of my business and life as almost a blessing now. It sounds strange to say, but it kind of gave me the freedom to have a greater impact in my life than I probably would have been doing otherwise. How did you push through? Because I think one of the things that you talk about is something your mom said, and it's also a a, a Mm -hmm. poet's quote, the only way out is through. I have this epiphany of the only way out being through when I hit rock bottom at my parents' house. And Liz, it was like I was playing out a sad country song of a story. So parents' house, girlfriend breaks up with me, six figures of personal debt. I I make light of it now, but it'd be hard to overstate how hard those first couple nights were, you know, staring at the ceiling in bed thinking, I don't know if I can or even if I want to go on. Like, where where am I going from here? And I thought, okay, if the way out is through, let me put this thing to the test. And the thing that scared me most back then, somewhat ironic given the work that I do today, was speaking in public. 
you know, I think I was always shy as a kid, but I had this massive business failure now on my track record. I was terrified to stand up in front of anybody and say anything. And (laughs) diving into the deep end, I uh, applied to speak at a conference in Singapore, somehow talked him into being the keynote speaker at his event. And I thought I totally bombed that event. But I get off the stage and he catches up with me and he's like, Sterling, that's the best talk I've seen in my 17 years of doing this. Now, to be clear, I don't think he was in the talk that I gave. I think he just wanted to say something (laughs) nice to me. But he did go on to put me in touch with all of his conference director friends. And I was like, well, wait a minute. My mom was right. The way out is through. We just have to go through no matter what. And I think key in that was the commitment of going through the things that scared me. That's what really made the difference. That discomfort. I love that. You created what you call no matter what approach. And it started with that impulse to kind of dig yourself out of the hole that you were in. What was that impulse? And explain what the no matter what approach means. The dark time after the company collapsed, I didn't really want to do much of anything. I I was beating myself up. I felt bad. I had a lot of reasons and excuses for why I was in the position that I was in. And I think most people can relate to that in some shape or form. You know, having It doesn't need to be a rock bottom moment, but some really hard time. And I found it hard even just to get out of bed in the morning. And so I adopted this personal mantra. I was like, okay, I'm going to get out of bed tomorrow, no matter what. And then I'm going to start making some of those phone calls I've been avoiding, no matter what. And then, as I just shared, I'm going to speak at this conference in Singapore, no matter (laughs) what. No matter what. (laughs) Right. Like, it was never intended to be anything initially other than my personal mantra. And it was first my sister that took it on. She was confronting some uh, health issues. And she said, you know what, Sterling, I'm going to be healthy no matter what. And today, as a championship bodybuilder, she's one of the healthiest people that I know. And then we had friends and other family members and people that I knew from my professional past start to look at us not just our results, but how we were fundamentally changing. And they said, well, how did you do that? We said, well, we just found the thing that was uncomfortable and we said we would do it no matter what. And since that's been formalized into the five steps of the no matter what system and countless other people have kind of taken on the process, but it really did start as something I was just telling myself because when things get hard, sometimes we do need to reach deep into ourselves, find that greater potential and tell ourselves, hey, I'm going to do this thing no matter what. You just mentioned those five steps, and they are in your book, Hunting Discomfort. And I'm going to let people read the book so that they can get all of them. But I do want to touch on two of them. I want to touch on number one and number five. So number one is to expand our reality. What does that mean? Well, oftentimes we look at the world like we see exactly what's happening. And that's not to say you're wrong. It may be the truth, but it's not the only truth or not the greater truth. If you look at some of the brain science behind how we're processing the information around us, like we're something 0.0000045% conscious. It's something like that. It's, it's a radically small percentage of our full consciousness that we're actually aware of. And so as we're able to be brave enough And I really do think it is an element of bravery and courage to say, okay, what I see may be true, but what somebody else sees might be true too. We can start to expand the reality that we're looking at and therefore get some expanded results from there. And number five 
of the practices came to you at one of the most challenging road bicycle races there is in the U.S. called the Triple Bypass Race. It covers something like 106 miles, three mountain passes in the Colorado Rockies. And number five mm. is surrender, surrender to uncertainty. Share with us the significance of that moment, Sterling. Discomfort, contrary to popular opinion, is not enough. Right. It's when we open our mind to new ideas, new perspectives, and just as important, maybe more important, open our hearts to some of the uncomfortable feelings that they're allowed to pass through us. And we are forever and permanently free of them. I'm on this bicycle race going through the Rockies, and I think I'm on the third mountain pass. And it, it comes back to me like it's it's awful. It's painful. I'm tired. I want it to be over. It's cold. It's rainy. Like all these circumstances. Have <laughs> I want to quit. <laughs> Not only I want to quit, but I'm thinking through how I can best quit. Like, what's my reason going to be that everybody's going to accept? And I realized that no matter what shatters going on in my head, all I have to do is keep turning the pedals. I just have to accept that pain, accept those thoughts, accept everything that's moving through me and just keep putting one foot in front of the other. I think that's the most important thing when we're going through discomfort. Because we can buckle down or we can avoid or we can deny the discomfort that's around us in any situation, but it's really opening to it and surrendering to what is exactly how it is that lets us move beyond it. You mentioned limiting beliefs a little while ago, and sometimes that's often when the most dramatic change happens in our lives, when we actually confront those limiting beliefs. What are some of the common signs of limiting beliefs? Well, if you say something like, I can't, or I won't, or whenever things are conditional, like I can't because, or in order to, whenever you've got conditions around something, it's likely a sign that there's some limiting beliefs at play there. And a good rule of thumb that I use is if in the rules of science and physics, if it's impossible, according to those things mathematically, <laughs> it's impossible. Otherwise, it's just some form of limiting belief. And a friend of mine that worked for one of the big tech companies out there was working on a project to get a new data center. And this is a multi-month, if not multi-year project. And they did it in something like 30 days. And my friend was initially confronted by the whole thing. It was like, well, we can't. We, it's impossible. Nobody's ever done that before. And they started breaking down the physics of it. And they're like, oh, yeah. We've got to work harder. We've got to work differently. We've got to do things that maybe we haven't done in the past, but it is possible. And sure enough, they did it. The truth of the matter, though, Sterling, is that for many people, many of us, the, the obstacles are flying at us. There's so much discomfort coming at us from all kinds of angles in life. Where do we even begin the process of facing it, especially if we're bombarded? Where do we begin to face that discomfort? I don't know about you. But I find that discomfort first thing in the morning when the alarm goes off and I hit the snooze button. I'm not even going to get out of bed. I'm going to forget that discomfort entirely. I'm going to stay here for another 10 minutes, right? And then I get up and I'm feeling the discomfort of being a little tired. I'm like, oh, well, I need a coffee. And then I look at the stairs when I get where I'm going and then I take the elevator. Yeah, so I, I'm avoiding discomfort from the moment I get up in the morning. And I think what's critical for me and for all of us is to just notice it, right? Like that's mm -hmm. the first step. Oh, I'm yeah. hitting the snooze button several times. Oh, I need a coffee every morning. Oh, I always take the elevator when stairs are an option. 
or I avoid the invitation to giving presentations or speaking in public or having tough conversations, right? The first step is really starting to notice where you're avoiding denying or surviving discomfort. Those are the discomfort defaults. Automatic and oftentimes inadvertent ways that we deal with discomfort and not even know it. And we live our lives this way. So it does really pay to step back from it and start looking at it a little bit under the microscope and say, okay, where in my life, in my day-to-day, in really simple ways, might I be avoiding, denying, and surviving discomfort? And from there, you can actually choose it a little more powerfully. I think one of the things that you sort of describe in your book when you're talking about this sort of scenario is that stuckness isn't a sign that you're trapped. It's just a sign that you have to make a change. It's time to make a change and just facing up to that reality and and seeking it and not being afraid of it, even though sometimes it is scaring. It's hard, Sterling, for most of us to share our deepest, darkest personal challenges, but you do so in this book so beautifully with such care and such authenticity. And even admitting that there was a time in your life with self-doubt. And you suggest that it's never a past failure that creates and feeds self-doubt but rather our interpretation of that experience. How do we interpret these experiences correctly if there is such a thing so that it doesn't lead to (laughs) self-doubt? Well, to be clear, I'm not free of self-doubt. I still have a lot of it. When I'm publishing blogs or having conversations or speaking to important groups, I still have self-doubt. But there's been this shift, a real understanding that self-doubt does not mean I should stop. It just means I really care about something, right? Something about me has a horse in the race. Something about what I'm looking at really matters. And when you have that reframe and really start to understand that that voice of self-doubt is not there to stop you or even hold you back, but it's inviting you to take a little more care into whatever you're doing and however you're Mm -hmm. doing it, that lets us move forward a little more easily. It's still not easy. But it is a different way to read the sign. There's something you wrote about that I'm still trying to wrap my head around. And you write, if you're someone who has no or very few close relationships in your life, your closest relationship is with self-doubt. You got to help me out on that one, Sterling. (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) Well, speaking as somebody that was not very vulnerable, not that I'm the best at it now, but back then, I was embarrassed of the failure that I had. And I started to shut down and pull back. And I didn't ask for help, Liz. What I did is I I think fairly common for many of us is I started to hide where I had failed. I continued to accept the invitations to fancy dinners with my fancy friends. And they would check in. They knew the business was collapsing because they saw it in the news and on TV and everywhere else. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm fine. I've got it figured out. Because I wasn't willing to be vulnerable enough to ask for help. And what happened is it became kind of the spiral of self-doubt where I was avoiding, denying, and surviving getting through these things. And what I found is that when I started to open up, first a little bit, and then more, and then more, and then all of a sudden, before I know I'm talking about it on the stage and it's in my book, I've realized that those connections, sharing authentically how challenging some of those times were, have given me a little more freedom from that self-doubt where I'm no longer held hostage by it, but I can share some of those things. And by sharing it, there's a camaraderie, a realization with others that, oh yeah, we all have self-doubt. We're all dealing with some of these things. 
And it makes it safer to be able to detach from that self-doubt and act in spite of it. We all want to feel liked. We all want to feel appreciated. We all want to feel loved. And and one of the things you talk about, about breaking free from self-doubt is getting a tattoo. Not literally a tattoo, although I've been surprised how many people have actually gotten no matter what tattoos, because I don't even have one yet. So that might be the next thing that I commit to. <laughs> but I talk about getting a tattoo in terms of making a commitment where there's no going back. It's what I did when I signed the paperwork to go speak in Singapore. When we have a commitment that's outside of ourselves, we're not 70, 80, or 90% more likely to achieve our goal. We're actually 95% more likely to achieve our goal. What happens is it retunes a mechanism in our brain called the reticular activating system, or RAS for short, R-A-S, that is normally tuned for survival. And what the RAS is, is it's this mechanism in our brain looking at what amongst all our unconscious is important to us to rise it to the surface. It's why, for example, you can hear your name called in a conference space because you know your name is important to us. Now, before we commit, or as I would say, before we get a tattoo, what that RAS is going to do is going to look back into the past for what we can't, why we shouldn't, what's dangerous, why it might be embarrassing, why we might look bad, why we might fail. But when we commit, specifically commit in ways where there's no going back, it retunes that RAS to look for new openings for action, new pathways to success that quite literally are impossible for us to see prior. So before we commit, it might look like there's no path ahead, but when we make a commitment, it's actually our biology, our physiology, how our brain works, works to our advantage to give us a way forward that we did not ever see, couldn't see in the stuckness before we committed. Well, today you're still an entrepreneur, but you're also a motivational leader, internationally recognized public speaker and author, having worked on this book for at least 10 years in some way, shape or form. It's filled with so much content to help people transform their lives. How has writing Hunting Discomfort and Hunting Your Own Discomfort transformed your life? It wasn't until the pandemic when all my speaking and workshops were canceled that I realized that I was actually avoiding the discomfort of writing a book. I didn't know it, right? I had all the reasons. Oh, I'm busy. Oh, I've got these other things to do and conflicting priorities. And the pandemic happened and the world shut down and I caught myself. This is the discomfort that I'm avoiding. And right then and there, I started working with publishers and started the pathway to writing a book. And what it did for me is it kind of formalized a lot of my thinking. It's one thing to have a conversation, to work with companies and to share some things on the stage, but it gave me a platform to really build from. It was almost like rewriting my origin story from something that was full of breakdowns and failures to realizing that, hey, that failure really was a critical step, not just in my professional trajectory, but in my life. And it was a way to kind of redefine where I'd come from and what I had been through to kind of step into in a more powerful way what I'm doing today. It was an awesome experience. Having published my, my book too, I get it. To learn more about Sterling's wonderful book, Hunting Discomfort, How to Get Breakthrough Results in Life and Business No Matter What, you can learn about the book and his great work that he's doing simply by going to sterlinghawkins.com. And we'll have that for you in our show notes. Sterling, I'm so happy to have you on my show, honored to have you on my podcast. I really appreciate you being so authentic and compassionate and sharing your wisdom with all of us today. 
and truly showing us that hunting discomfort is a skill that we can develop and its rewards are absolutely immense. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. It's been an honor to be with you. Appreciate you. And thanks to all of you for listening today. I invite you to make the choice to hunt your own discomfort. Be willing to depart for the unknown because when you do, you truly can find many gifts beyond your imagination and live an extraordinary best life. Until next time, be well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media, helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud and Fast Twitch Media can take you there. Be your best digital self. Check out fasttwitchmedia.space.